From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. We missed that. Hi. Hey. Welcome to How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine. I'm John. We got some more good stories for you today. You're going to continue on with your JFK saga, right? Yeah, I'm very excited. I watched the rest of the documentary today and it is... um, it's fantastic stuff. I, this part I'm talking about tonight, I had really no idea about. So I definitely missed it. Hopefully everyone else did as well. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about it. I've got a, a good one for you tonight. Excellent. I can't and, wait. Yeah. And this one comes to us from Australia. Ooh, mate. So that's good probably day. how I missed it. <laughs> well, mate. Because it's a completely different country. Can you read it in an accent? please the whole time no however some of the information i did get i got from a podcast called case file yeah and the gentleman who is the host is australian so it made me feel like i was there it was really good you know what's some good information i listen to a few podcasts that are um our british friends and it just sounds so weird to me I love their voice and their accent but i'm so used to hearing english speaking american podcasts that it it's just weird, you know? <laughs> right. Well, the best part it, was though. that they actually, he had all these different terms that I actually had to look up because I'm like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. And it's a completely different thing that we say here. It's almost like a completely different language. I, I only know Barbie and Fosters. Uh, Australian phobia. Okay. That's all I know. Wow. <laughs> we just lost like we did. a Let, can bunch we just, of listeners. <laughs> and we actually have some there. So good day, Australia. We do. We have some in Australia? We do, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. this is for you guys out there in it Australia. Sure so this, um, again, I got some of my information from the podcast Case File, as well as Murderpedia. Um, that sounds like a, a female's oh, paradise. It was a rabbit hole, I will tell you. <laughs> anyway, this is the story of Catherine Mary Knight. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, she was born in on October 24th, 1955. But what's interesting about her is she is the first Australian woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. She was convicted of the murder of her partner, John Charles Thomas Price. Ooh, four names this time. I know. But he's the victim, so it doesn't really matter, I guess. In October of 2001 and is currently detained in Silverwater Women's Correctional Center with an E at the end. Like you like. Yeah, my favorite. (laughs) So what shocked me about the story before I begin because i mean there's a ton to shock you but the first thing that shocked me was that she's the first woman to be sentenced to life in prison without parole and this was only october of 2001 so it's interesting that they haven't done that in australia oh uh, yeah i was gonna say you, you said just in australia not no no not ever world. okay no, no. yeah yeah that's so, surprising i mean I, yeah. I don't know much about australian crime i'm assuming you might get into some of that but maybe mm, this just not, not a, really <laughs> I don't know if there's a ton of crime there to begin with. I never hear about yeah, these heinous right. crimes there like you do here and everywhere else. Right. 
So the story comes to us from New South Wales, which I had to look it up. It's a state in the southeast of Australia, and it's distinguished by its coastal cities and national parks. It sounds like a really beautiful place. It does. The story begins when Catherine's mom, Barbara, and I think it's Ruffin, I'm going to assume, is caught having an affair with a co-worker of her husband's, Ken Knight, and became pregnant with his twins, Catherine and her brother. So first of all, I want to tell you about Barbara because I think Catherine gets a lot of her moxie, let's say, from her mother. So Barbara was a little rough around the edges. She used excessive bad language, was very strict with her kids, lots of hitting and things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, again, I told you she had an affair with a guy that her current husband worked with. His name was not her current husband, but... The yeah, guy she had an affair with yeah, is Ken yeah, Knight. Yeah. Um, since both the Ruffin and the Knight families were well known in this tiny town. So they lived in a town called Aberdeen. And there was only about 1,500 people. And a lot of the people worked in mines or at a slaughterhouse that was there. Mm-hmm. So um, it was quite the scandal at this point in time because it's such a tiny town. So they kind of tried to stick together, tried to keep it under wraps as much as they could. Uh, the, the, pr- the twins' pregnancy might... Screw that up right. a little bit. <laughs> right. Just saying. I mean, that's the number one way to screw up an affair if you're trying to hide it is to get double pregnant. Right. Double yeah. big, double, double size, double everything. Not good. Double double mint. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they should double up the uh, condom next time. Perhaps. So after Barbara's husband, Jack, died in 1959, Catherine and her brother were sent to live with the Knight family. They kind of lived together at that point in time. And Catherine became very close with her uncle until he completed suicide in 1969. And she still maintains that his ghosts visit her. Mm. So interesting. Uh, You said completed suicide. Are you speaking like an Australian now? No, I'm not. So this is the thing that's becoming uh, more prevalent in the media and in society is that we're trying to get away from the stigma of suicide being... Uh, like an, a, a wrongdoing, I guess. So when you say that they completed suicide, it's just the way that they died. How did I miss that? How did you miss that? I, know. I was today uh, years old. Mis- I totally yeah. thought you misspoke. No, I didn't. And I was throwing shade your way. I know. I'm and here sorry. I am getting. No, I love it. It's it's from a, a mental health okay. standpoint. I'm it's coming on board. From schools and being yeah, a teacher. Saying, I mean, you say someone commits murder and then they commit suicide. It's the same connotation. I get it. Right. And it's it's almost making it as if they're doing, and they are doing something to other people. It does hurt the family and the people that are involved in it, but it's a it's an act on themselves. So Yeah. And we could do a whole show on that, but that we is, um, I think that's a narcissistic point of view from both sides, mm. that they're doing something to someone else. Yeah, you're right. But it's a very personal thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, mental health wise. So, okay, right. great. Good to know. So Knight's father, Ken, was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to rape her mother up to 10 times a day. I can't imagine like even doing that 10 times a day. I mean, I would stop at five. Ten's Possibly. Quite, that's right. a lot. Barbara, in turn, often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and men. Yeah. In fact, at one point, Catherine complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to join in, but that she did not want to. Barbara told her to, quote, put up with it and stop complaining. Suck it up, baby. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's great, right? Mom of the year. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Knight claims she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family, though not by her father. 
which continued until she was 11. So not exactly the greatest childhood for this, this lovely lady. No. Catherine was by all accounts a pleasant girl, but she experienced uncontrollable rages when faced with only minor upsets. When she attended Musselwell, sorry, Muswellbrook High School, it's a town kind of close. Again, I told you Aberdeen's kind of this small little town. Mm-hmm. So they have a, another town over where she went to high school. She became a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who tried to intimidate smaller children. She assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was found to have been acting in self-defense. By hmm. contrast, when not in rage, Knight was a model student and often earned awards for her good behavior. Sounds like some like, uh, undiagnosed bipolar. What I know. When I'm reading this and I'm like, what? And what year was this again? This was 2001. <clears throat> That's when she uh, finally committed her last okay murder so this is in the 70s right now yeah so i was i don't know if bipolar was a thing but i know a lot of those kind of mental health psychological things and um yeah. you know things like autism and whatever wasn't a big deal back then no, nobody so really it wasn't get, commonplace like it is now yeah we're gonna get deeper into her rages on leaving school at 15 without having learned to read or write she gained employment as a cutter in a clothing factory Twelve months later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job. You ready for the dream job? I, anything's got to be better than cutter. I've never heard of that well, profession. She's, she's still cutting. Oh. But now she's cutting up awful, which I got to tell you sounds pretty awful. Yeah. Because guess what it is? Uh, it's got to be some kind of um, the parts of an animal you don't want. Yeah. So it's cutting up the unused parts of animals like organs and flesh and getting it ready for consumption. Oh man. Good guess. Yeah. Way to go join. So actually when she started at this place, the, the slaughterhouse that she's working at, she was mopping up blood, picking up carcasses and disposing of all the unused parts. I feel like that job's more dreamy than cutting up awful. Right. So let me explain to you what, why this is her, her dream job. So her father, Kent, Ken, excuse me, worked at the slaughterhouse as well. So she felt like she was following in her father's footsteps here. They come from a long line of awful professionals. Of awful cutters. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So she's doing great work at the slaughterhouse, apparently. She was quickly promoted to boning <laughs> and given her own set of butcher knives. You know, I think... Uh, I think you were promoted to boning in 2007. To- Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At home, she hung the knives over her bed so that she would al- they would always be handy in case she needed them. It was a habit that she continued everywhere she lived. You never know if a, uh, what do they have there? Dingo. If a dingo runs into her bed, oh, we've got bed, a dingo in wanna, this story. Just you wait. She's going to want to slice it up. Yeah. Well, so she hung them above her bed. She's very proud of her knives. So now let's move into Catherine's love life, which is just peachy, I gotta say. Really good, really good love life. Catherine first met hardworking co-worker David Stanford Kellett in 1973 and completely dominated him. If Kellett got into a fight, Catherine would step in and back him up without fail. She was renowned for offering armed combat to anyone who would upset her. Knight married Kellett in 1974, so they had like a super quick relationship. In the beginning, everything was great, but it gets worse. <laughs> it oftentimes does on this program. Right. So the marriage was actually at her request. She asked him to marry her. 
with the uh, the couple arrived at the service on her motorcycle where Kellett was very intoxicated and on the passenger seat in the back. <laughs> so, yeah. So she wears the pants. She wears. That's what you are illustrating here, I believe. The pants. Gotcha. On their wedding night. So everything was great. I told you they had a really quick courtship. Everything was fine. It went bad pretty quickly. And actually on their wedding night was when it started to take a turn. She tried to strangle him in his sleep. Mm. Knight explained it was because he fell asleep after only having sex three times. And it was because he was intoxicated that he couldn't, you know, perform any longer. And so she decided to strangle him. Mm. The old whiskey dick strikes again. Yeah. The marriage was particularly violent. And on one occasion, a heavily pregnant knight burned all Kellett's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan. Who knew, right? (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition after making the finals. So I can imagine how many times you would have been hit in the head after arriving home late from your drag racing. (laughs) What is going on in this town where where the hot (laughs) job is a slaughterhouse? We're doing darts competitions. I mean... It's a tiny clearly, town. Clearly, I'm not Only from Australia. Only 1,500 people. Is this, this what's cool town. over there in? Uh, I guess so. The outback. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. In fear for his life, Kellett fled before collapsing in a neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge her, but Knight had talked Kellett into dropping the charges. In May of 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, Kellett left her for another woman apparently unable to cope with Knight's possessive violent behavior. The next day, Knight was seen pushing her new baby in a stroller down the main street. And and this is where they had prams, which I thought was very cute. What's a pram? A stroller. They called them a pram. Yeah. Anyway, so she was violently throwing the stroller from side to side. Like people are watching her doing this crazy thing. She decides to take the baby and put the baby on the train tracks. And then she like walks away. But luckily, a local man saw the baby and picked the baby up. So after that, she was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After being released, Knight placed two-month-old Melissa in a car, went to her neighbor's house. Her neighbor's house is Molly. Her name's Molly. Threatened Molly with a butcher knife and told her to take her to Queensland, which was where the baby's dad was. On their way, they stop at this service station where Knight threatens to kill the service guy there. Luckily, police come. They have to beat her with broomsticks to get her to drop the knife. She basically, her excuse for threatening the service man was that he fixed her husband's car, which took him away from her. So she was going to murder him. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So her original plan was... To, I'm trying to remember this now. So her original plan was she was going to get the woman, Molly, Mm -hmm. to take her to her mother-in-law's house where she was going to ask the mother-in-law why her husband left her. And then she was going to kill the mother-in-law and herself to get back at the husband. Okay. Yeah. So that was her original plan. Didn't quite work out. The police were able to disarm her again with brooms. (laughs) Um, And again, she was admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. Is that standard issue for I think so. Australian police? Yeah. So you don't get a gun, you get a broom? I don't know. I'm thinking that they were trying to to wrestle her. I mean, you know she's into combat, so probably 
she was quite strong, I'm assuming. Yeah. I think they were, I, th- I know one police officer was injured in the process. So it was probably just a way to keep her further away, but also. <laughs> well, I mean, this was the 70s. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm just thinking modern law enforcement, you like would tase her or even shoot her if she keeps coming after you, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. That, I guess that wasn't a thing in, back then. No tasers, at least. Yeah. Well, when police informed Kellett of the incident, he left his girlfriend, and along with his mother, they both moved back to support Catherine. So the relationship is back on at this point in time. Knight was released on August 9th of 1976 into the care of her mother-in-law and her husband, um, and they moved to a new town where she obtained a job at the Dinmore Meatworks. On March 6th of 1980, they had another daughter, Natasha Marie. In 1984, Knight left Kellett and moved in, first with her parents in Aberdeen, then to a rented house in nearby Musselbrook. Although she returned to work at the slaughterhouse, she injured her back the following year and went on disability pension and was given government housing, and at that point, she was no longer allowed to keep her job, which was, remember, her absolute dream job. So it's shortly after this that another violent outbreak comes and her and Kellett have this huge fight. She smacks him in the head again, splitting his head open. He goes to the hospital and he's done with her. So this relationship is over. Finally. <laughs> I, I'm surprised he gave it another go. Right? I know. I'm not really sure what's going on with her, but we've got some more men in the line here that you're like, what? I don't understand. I mean, just so you know, I draw the line at blunt head trauma. So <laughs> thank you. It's for only going to take know. once for if you got do it. that to me, I'm out. Got it. Well, Knight met 38-year-old miner David Saunders in 1986. A few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters, but still kept his own apartment. Knight soon became jealous of what he was doing when he was not around her and would often throw him out. He would move back to his apartment and then he would invariably follow and beg him to return. She, sorry. In May of 1987, she cut the throat of his two-month-old dingo pup in front of him as an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair before going on to knock him unconscious with a frying pan. Jesus. She loves frying pans. Yeah. But there's the dingo. Poor dingo baby. Poor Freddy dingo. Mm. The the frying pan can be a very effective weapon. Apparently. This is her weapon of choice. Yeah. In June of 1988, she gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah. Stop having kids. Right? This is the last person that should be having any kids ever. So it's interesting to me because it seems like every time she has a child, her like violent outbursts get even worse. So I'm wondering if like the original diagnosis of postnatal depression is something really bad for her. You know what I'm saying? So I kind of yeah, it's would obviously love triggering. To explore that avenue a little bit more with her, but right, it seems to be triggering this bipolar type reaction. Right. So after right. she has the baby, Saunders decides to put on a deposit on a house which Knight paid off with her, co- her workers' compensation claim in 1989. Knight decorated the house throughout with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. There was not a space, including the ceilings, that was left uncovered. Sounds joyful. Very creepy, yeah. After an argument where she hit Saunders in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors, he moved out. Oh, we moved (laughs) on to an iron now. Yeah. No frying pans in this house? No. 
But when he later returned home, he found that she had cut up all his clothes. Saunders took leave from his job and went into hiding. Why is no one calling the authorities here? I don't know. That's when I'm like, what is... And it was a well-known thing in the town that, like, you don't want to cross her. I don't understand. I know. I really oh, don't yeah. understand I'm going to need to look that up after the show because that doesn't make any sense to right, me. So People are getting obliterated by I, her. Right. And I told you, like, I've had several sources and yeah. every single one of them was the same story. So it's not like <laughs> someone's missing something. Yeah. Anyway, Knight tried to find him, but no one admitted to knowing where he was. Several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found that Knight had gone to the police and told them that she was afraid of him. So they had issued her an apprehended violence order, an AVO. So I'm assuming that's like our um, restraining orders. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's what I'm assuming. Wait, what does it stand for again? Apprehended violence order. Hmm. Yeah, probably. What are you thinking? Something different? I immediately went to like APB, like they're a, a lookout. Oh, like they're oh, trying to find yeah. Them. So then my wires got crossed. But yeah, I think that's probably, I'm just trying to figure out what the apprehended part means. Apprehended usually means like when you yeah. catch a shoplifter, you've apprehended them. Yeah, I don't so know. I, I don't know. Anyway, we'll look that up as well. In 1990, Knight became pregnant by a 43-year-old former slaughterhouse co-worker, John Chillingworth, and gave birth the following year to a boy they named Eric. So at this point in time, she's mama to four babies with three different daddies. And they're ranging from ages 17 as the oldest and, you know, this baby. Newborn, yeah. Newborn. So. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. And we mentioned that everyone in the town knew this woman's story. What guys are still wanting to hook up with this? Right. So I'm actually really glad you said that because that's not part of my notes and I wanted to address it. And it's perfect that you said it just now. So... John Chillingworth worked at the slaughterhouse, like I told you. Mm -hmm. She had started at the slaughterhouse when she was about 16 years old. So they knew each other at that point, but obviously there was no relationship between the two. And John had moved away to a different town, had gotten married, had had a life, but now 20 years later has come back. And that's when he struck up this relationship with Catherine. Their relationship is wonderful. He's telling all his friends that this is the one for him. Like, he's just completely head over heels for her the relationship is going fabulous but obviously that doesn't last very long as we know why aren't all his friends saying that's crazy Catherine from aberdeen lane what are you talking about it's a great i don't know Um, but their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man she had been having an affair with for some time john price Mm -hmm. so this man she is just absolutely in love with okay Okay. people call him pricey pricey yes he was the father of three children when knight had an affair with him he was liked by everyone who knew him his own marriage had ended in 1988 while his two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife the two older children lived with him Price was well aware of knight's violent reputation but even still she moved into his house in 1995 His children liked her. He was making a lot of money working in the local mines. And apart from violent arguments, at first, life seemed really great. (laughs) In 1998, what? I'm just thinking like, you know, you're... You're a new couple and you're just like, how's your friends like, how's it going? And it's like, oh, you know, we beat the shit out of each other every other night. But otherwise, it's great. 
I know. Well, I don't understand. He's and aware that be a of her. Deal breaker. Like you, you've been saying. Do, do guys not know about this? But he, he does. He knows she's violent. Right, but in most cases, a violent argument's a deal breaker for ninety nine percent of the relationships out there. But these people are like, other than that, it's great. Yeah. This woman must be just absolutely fantastic in bed. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know. I don't even know if that's worth getting hit over the head with a frying pan. <laughs> no, it's not. So in 1998, they had a fight over Price's refusal to marry her. And in retaliation, Knight videotaped items he had stolen from work and sent the tape to his boss. Mm. So these items, you know, they were out of date medical kits, things that he had scavenged from the garbage. There were things that were going to be thrown away anyway. But once his bosses watched the videotape, they came over to his house where Knight then pointed out all of the things that he had stolen, things like bug spray. <laughs> um, but I guess it was the out of date first aid kit that like really sealed the deal for them. And he was fired. Hmm. Okay. So we need to do a deeper dive into this town, I think, for another episode, because everybody there seems a little batshit. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I would like to check it out, maybe. But anyway, he had this job for 17 years. He'd been making a hundred thousand dollars a year which is in this time period is amazing yeah but now it's all gone he lost it all because of this woman wow that same day he kicked her out and she returned to her own home while news of what she had done spread through the town a few months later price restarted the relationship although he now refused to allow her to move in with him and well that's going to teach her (laughs) yeah the fighting became even more frequent and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him while they remained together so he's telling his friends all of the stuff that's going on. He's obviously a different person. They, they just don't want to deal with it anymore. They don't want to hear it anymore. They've told him he needs to fix it, told him he needs to leave, and he's just not doing it. So, I mean, if I were a friend and my friend's doing that, I don't know. I'd, I'd probably do the same thing. <laughs> the well, friend- you, you have to. It's like hard as a friend. It's hard to sit back and watch that. And when you've done everything you can. And yep. they're still not responding. You have to walk away from it. Otherwise, it starts to become damaging to you as a friend. You don't want to be there and witness them going through this. Yeah, right. Well, in, in testimony in the trial, the friends were saying that Price had just become a completely withdrawn person. They'd never seen him so paranoid and nervous. He had said on several occasions that she's going to kill him. Um, in February of 2000, a series of assaults on Price culminated with Knight stabbing Price in the chest. Finally fed up, he kicked her out of his house. On February 29th, he stopped on his way to work and took out a restraining order to keep her away from both him and his children. That afternoon, Price told his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, it would be because Knight had killed him. They pleaded with him not to go home, but he told them that he believed she would kill his children if he didn't. Price arrived home to find that Knight, although not there herself, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. He then spent the evening with his neighbors, trying to kind of stay away from her, before going to bed at 11 p.m. Knight later arrived at Price's house while he was sleeping and sat watching TV for a few minutes before taking a shower. She then woke Price up, they had sex, and then he fell asleep. Like you do. Like you do. Yeah. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbor became concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway, and when Price did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. Both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him, but after noticing blood on the front door, alerted the police who arrived at 8 a.m. Breaking down the back door, 
Police found his body with night comatose from taking a large number of pills. She had stabbed Price with a butcher knife while he was sleeping. According to the blood evidence, he awoke and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape while Knight chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but either stumbled back inside or was dragged back into the hallway, which they're not really sure about. But based on the blood pattern, it seems like that was the case Mm -hmm. where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, Knight went into town and withdrew $1,000 from Price's bank account. Price's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in both the front and back of his body, with many of the wounds extending into vital organs. Remember, I told you she was really good with her knives, right? Yeah. Well, you would think she would have butchered him, not just stabbed him brutally. (sighs) Just wait. Oh, good. Yeah. (laughs) I swear, audience, I didn't read this beforehand. Well, just you wait. I'm just that good. Several hours after Price had died, Knight skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook in the doorframe of the living room. As you do, yeah. She then decapitated him mm-hmm. and cooked parts of his body, right. serving up the meat with baked potatoes, pumpkin, Ooh. zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy in two settings at the dinner table. I'm hungry. Along with notes beside each plate, each having the name of one of Price's children on it, she was preparing to serve his body parts to his children. Hmm. Wow. Mm. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. This lady is banana lands. So they also found a third meal on the back lawn and they don't know why she threw it out, but it was speculated that Knight had attempted to eat it, but then she couldn't do it. Mm. So she threw it out. Okay. The pot that had his head in it yeah. <laughs> was still warm. Making some head soup. Right. Indicating that the cooking had taken place in the early morning. Again, I told you his head was in it. It was found with a bunch of vegetables just floating in the pot. Well, you know, if you're going to make a good stock, you need the carcass and then some vegetables. Yeah. Right. She knows what she's doing. I guess so. Yeah. Sometime later, Knight arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty soda bottle with the legs crossed. This was claimed in court to be an act of defilement, demonstrating Knight's contempt for Price. Knight had left a handwritten note on the top of a photograph of Price, bloodstained and covered with small pieces of flesh. Yummy. Mm. So I can, I I have what the note said here, but it's pretty incoherent. But basically it's a note to his children, from what I can tell, accusing him of sexually assaulting her children. Okay. But those accusations were found to be completely baseless. Yeah, yeah. Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected, and she was arraigned on February 2nd on the charge of murdering Price, to which she entered a plea of not guilty. When the trial began, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, she decided she was not guilty because she didn't remember any of this happening. So that's why she wasn't guilty. I'm telling you, bipolar, 1000%. Right. I mean, she was in a manic episode. Absolutely. Yeah. When the trial began, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, and five of them accepted. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out. I'm assuming because it's such a small town. Yeah, yeah. Knight's attorneys then spoke to the judge, who adjourned to the following day. The next morning, Knight changed her plea to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. It was now made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. He had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric, psychiatric excuse me, assessment overnight to determine if Knight understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. 
Knight's legal team had planned to defend Knight by claiming amnesia and disassociation, a claim supported by most psychiatric, psych, I can't even speak tonight, psychiatrists, excuse me, although they did consider her sane. So the psychiatrist met with her, did a whole evaluation. They find her sane, though they do believe that she has kind of dissociated herself with this situation, which happens actually with schizophrenics. So I'm surprised they haven't thought of that angle, although I guess if she doesn't have many other personalities, that would make sense. But So no reason has ever been given for the guilty plea. She just decided to say she was guilty all of a sudden. And despite giving it, Knight still refused to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. When Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand described the skinning and decapitation, Knight became hysterical and had to be sedated. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment, refused to fix a non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked never to be released. The first time that this had been imposed on a woman in Australian history. In June 2006, Knight appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail without possibility of parole was too severe for the killing, but her appeal was dismissed. So why was she not um, claiming insanity? It's pretty clear. Or how come no lawyer or anything stood up and fought for that? Because her reaction in the courtroom is pretty clear that she's nuts. Right, but she's claiming... She's not reclaiming responsibility for doing this. So I feel like if she said, oh, I, you know, I'm guilty by insanity, then she's admitting that she did it. So to her, she didn't do it. She doesn't remember any of this happening. No, I, that's why I'm saying I feel like a doctor needs to step in and say clearly there's a mental disconnect here or some kind of mental issue going on. I, right, get what, I don't know. The I get psychiatrist found her sane. I'm... Yeah, that's, I, I feel like there's a miss there. Yeah, I, I don't know. Personally, I, really don't. I don't know. Well, anyway, the story of Catherine Knight and the murder of John Price. Hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty brutal stuff. Yeah. That, the one where she stabbed him 37 times it yeah. reminded me of that scene from uh, Halloween. Michael Myers just going to town, just like, how yeah. many times can you <laughs> possibly kill someone? Yeah. It's uh, usually they say when it comes to stabs like that, it's uh, personal. Yeah. yeah. It's not just, uh, I just want to kill you. It's like, I'm upset. I'm mad. It's It's a personal thing. Right. So let's hear it. So last week I talked about this being a multiple part series, possibly up to five. That's too much. After watching the documentary in full today, the other three theories basically just reinforce this theory I'm going to talk about tonight through different means of investigation to back it up. We don't need to get into them. So this will conclude the JFK conspiracy theories. So this is known as theory number two that... JFK was killed by a CIA slash mafia conspiracy, CIA operatives. And you're probably asking, what does the CIA have to do with an organized crime network like the mafia? And I will explain. Okay. Because they shouldn't be connected, right? Well, one is what crime about and one is government. Whitey Bulger story you told, they had to connected that way. Exactly. There's a long okay. history of this. And what I originally teased when we went down this JFK road, that maybe there's something against the entire family. Okay. I now believe 100% that there is. Hmm. And that most of the deaths, even maybe the plane crash, if it was doctored by somebody, 
caused by the mafia and mm-hmm. CIA. Because it turns out there's a deep, deep hatred of the Kennedy family that goes back to John F. Kennedy's father in the 20s with the mafia. Hmm. Okay. Acts of betrayal, all this other stuff. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I missed all of this. Okay. I think everybody did. I don't remember hearing this. All right. So should we get right into it? Yes, do so it. prior to the inauguration for John F. Kennedy, the CIA had entered into a secret contract with the Chicago Crime Syndicate. So at the direction of J. Edgar Hoover, who was director of the FBI and other people in government, the CIA had a relationship and used the mafia to carry out hits for them, essentially, against other world leaders. Fidel Castro okay. was one of them. Lots of other world leaders. Jack Sheldon, a former FBI agent, says that prior to JFK's assassination, the CIA was in bed with the mafia in Chicago and that former slash retired FBI agent Robert Mayhew connected the CIA with the mob and formulated plans to kill Fidel Castro in Cuba. I think after learning more about this and reading about it, that whole thing could be a whole other episode about the U.S. government and the mafia trying to kill Fidel Castro. Very interesting stuff there that I never had any idea about. Through this relationship with Mayhew, plans were allegedly made to execute JFK on November 22nd, 1963. And there's CIA agents and FBI agents retired that had overheard conversations with mafia figures, high-ranking mafia figures. So I, I don't know if there's two sides divided on this thing anymore. Okay. You know, people that were alive back then that are just 1,000% sure that it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm. But after watching this documentary, and again, it's just kind of one view on it, I am 100% in conspiracy camp on this one. <laughs> this was definitely a hit. That sounds like a camp I want to go to. Yeah, right? Conspiracy camp. <laughs> I, I firmly believe after doing all this research that this was absolutely a hit by the mafia and the CIA to eliminate the Kennedy family completely. Not just John, Robert, all of them. Okay. Okay. So they're just starting with him. Is that what you're saying? Or were yeah. they trying to get everybody yes. at once? I'm confused. No, just starting with him. Okay. Got it. The CIA had already had success overthrowing other foreign leaders. Like I mentioned, it was widely believed that they could do whatever the hell they wanted. Mm-hmm. The FBI and the CIA could just do any kind of investigation by any means, wiretaps, all kinds of things that would be viewed as illegal now. They just had free reign to do whatever they wanted. Crazy time back then. Did they have free reign like they had permission or they just did whatever they wanted to do? I think it was a little bit of both um, based on what I learned. Because like I said, with J. Edgar Hoover being in charge of the FBI, he had connections to the mafia they were in his back pocket and vice versa. So he, they were just running wild, doing whatever they wanted. I don't think the heads of government were really paying attention. Okay. And I'll get into this a little more, but that's where this whole thing went wrong is Robert Kennedy was appointed as the attorney general under John F. Kennedy. And they decided that together they were going to crack down on organized crime. Okay. And so the mafia suddenly felt betrayed because we were buddies with the government going all the way back to Joseph Kennedy. And so they felt betrayed. And that's why I I really believe, based on all the mafia crime shows I've watched and Sopranos and things like that, (laughs) these guys hold grudges and have the ability to do, you know, serious damage. I think that they, um, I think they have a vendetta against this family still to this day. Okay. And they're literally trying to eliminate all of them. So are you familiar with the Bay of Pigs? 
I've heard of it, but I don't honestly know much. I didn't either. I had just heard of it. So real quick, it was a failed landing operation on the southwestern coast of Cuba by Cuban exiles who opposed Castro's Cuban revolution. It was covertly financed by the U.S. government and took place at the height of the Cold War. The failed operation led to major shifts in international relations between Cuba, the U.S., and the Soviet Union, some of which are still strained today. Following that failure, JFK took away all covert military actions from the CIA and shut down most covert operations from Cuba. Mm, Okay. So that's where this kind of all started, this betrayal kind of thought from the mafia, because apparently the mafia had several casinos and businesses in Cuba at the time that all got shut down. Everything that America had, any dealings with shut down. So they lost millions of dollars and they blamed it on him. JFK was embarrassed about the failure that his name was associated with it and that it happened under his term. And so, like anyone else, he was trying to pass blame and he blamed the CIA Mm. at the time. And that's why he pulled all their power from that. The CIA's power and lack of accountability was widely known in the press and amongst most Americans. So back then, there was this sentiment toward the CIA. And I think I've heard my parents talking about this a little bit, like how you can't trust the CIA and, and me. At my age, in the line of work I'm in, I always thought they were a good thing. Like they investigated terrorism and Central Intelligence Agency. They knew the dealings of bad guys. Well, it's funny you say that because I've always had the impression that the CIA was corrupt and you can't really trust them. And I wonder if it comes from like my grandparents or my parents somehow just subliminally. I don't know. Yeah, I always it, just kind of had that impression before any of this was even talked about. Yeah, it must. So I've seen it in like portrayed in movies like Mission Impossible, for example. I mean, complete fiction, obviously, but right. It's always like them being, yeah, yeah, and the whole Jason Bourne thing, all that. Exactly. I I guess I wasn't going down corrupt and more so just kind of sneaky. Like they can do whatever they want. They have all this resources and power, and uh, so yeah, I wasn't thinking corrupt. I'd like. I guess I just like to think that our our law enforcement agencies well, aren't yeah. doing you know <laughs> who wouldn't <laughs> who wouldn't right so as mentioned before JFK was intensely hated by the FBI director J Edgar Hoover I mentioned that last episode right Hoover ran the FBI since its inception which was about nearly 5 decades that's a pretty long tenure for any yeah. high ranking executive and he ran it like a secret special police force he was known to use wiretaps and other surreptitious methods to conduct investigations within the United States and against government officials. Hoover realized he would be forced to retire mandatorily when the election happened in 1964. He'd reached the age. He'd been running this organization, like I said, for almost 50 years. It was time for him to move on, and he didn't want to. He also hated Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general and his boss at the time. And we'll get into more of that in a minute, but it's basically because he made these deals with organized crime and Robert Kennedy's sole mission as the AG was to shut them down. The Kennedy family also despised Hoover. So this is a mutual agreement. They both hated each other, (laughs) particularly JFK, because Hoover had found out about his many love affairs. Hoover even had lunch with JFK one time to warn him about being careful with his extramarital affairs and threatened to expose him. Weren't the affairs something everybody knew about, or was that something that came about after he passed away? I think it away? came about after. Oh, okay. I, I always got the impression everybody was pretty, like everybody pretty much knew about them. I guess not. I don't know. I mean, I could be. I, I don't know that part of history. Obviously, I missed all of this, so I didn't know a lot about this to begin with, but I have heard about them now. I just don't know when right. they came out. Okay. 
Wasn't he with Marilyn Monroe? Apparently. Apparently. Who else? Well, yeah, I guess there's like a lot from what I have heard. I don't know. Like I mentioned, ties between Hoover and the Mafia were strong. Prosecutions against Mafia members dropped to almost nothing the day after JFK's assassination. So oh, there were nothing. Wow. There was nothing before, like nary even a mention of them. Then Robert Kennedy was appointed AG, and they ramped up big time. He gets assassinated, gone. Yeah. Wow. So that was kind of a quick overview of the. I guess a little introduction into how the mafia plays into this and the hatred between the FBI and CIA and Kennedy, um, which kind of starts to paint a picture as to why they might want to uh, get rid of him and have something to do do with this. So let's rewind a little bit back to last episode and talk real quickly about Lee Harvey Oswald. He was presented in the press as kind of a lone nut guy who just decided he wanted to do this, snapped mental issues, whatever. That's the picture everyone wanted you to see and believe. That's what the Warren Commission tried to prove. However, the part they hid from everyone was that he, in fact, had ties to the intelligence community. Oh, did he? He did. Okay. Lee Harvey Oswald was an ex-Marine and a trained intelligence operative. He was the perfect case for a patsy and even recognized that he was being set up to the press. Even the press referred to him several times as a patsy. So there's a... What's a, what's a patsy? It's like is. a fall guy. You know, someone who's oh, going to, okay. you, you're being set up to take the fall for this Got incident it. that okay. is involving multiple other people. He had this background that nobody talked about. Nobody cared to mention in the Warren Commission. This all came out in the other House okay. Special Committee mm-hmm. report that they did this deeper uh, dive into his background. So how this also links back to the mafia is the hidden background of Lee Harvey Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby. Okay. So if you remember, I mentioned in the episode last that he was trying to be an American hero. That's what he wanted to be portrayed as. He was yeah. just a grieving American who, turns out that's not the case. Of course, there's always more to it, well, right? Yeah, that it always, it, when you talked about it last week, it struck me as odd. Yeah, like, I remember. It was a weird thing. You even said, so he wasn't trying to like shut him up or. Yeah. You know, yeah. Seemed... Well, it turns out he was. Oh, <laughs> Potentially, you if you See? believe this theory, right? So he had a shadowing background of connection to the mafia. He grew up working for a Chicago mafia leader. You may have heard of him, Al Capone. Oh, good old Al. Just just a little Al. Ruby was connected to a previous mob-related murder of a garbage handler's union executive in Chicago. What's it with? Wait, was it garbage handler or (laughs) was it? Was that a cover? I don't know. I was just going to say, what is Mm. it with these mafia guys in there? Waste management connections. Waste management. It's easy to say when you're burying dead bodies in the river that I'm in waste management. Yeah, I I mean, I guess technically it's not a lie. Yeah, just like if you're a drug dealer, you tell people I'm in pharmaceutical sales. It has a much better ring to it, much more professional sounding. Is that like human directional advertising? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Apparently he was tied to this murder of this executive for the union. He was held but eventually released and soon left Chicago following the initial investigations. Ruby was also well known to the police, and is, it is believed that he clearly had assistance to be in the position he was in to kill Oswald at the time. After Ruby was convicted and sentenced for Lee Harvey Oswald's death, he was sentenced to death as well, he decided he finally wanted to talk. Oh, okay. He publicly went on record saying, the world will never know the truth for my motives. Just kind of left it at that. Well, I mean, I think that's pretty telling of its own. It is, but I mean, a lot of, with most of the people believing that he was okay. a grieving American, it, I, to me, it seems kind of open-ended. He's hinting right. at something, but he's not 
coming right out and saying, I'm part of a bigger plot. Right? Got it. The Warren Commission concluded that they found no connection to organized crime in their investigation of Ruby. The House Special Committee on Assassinations, however, simply looked into just a little thing, no big deal, looked into his phone records. Oh. That apparently the Warren Commission didn't bother with. Oh, yeah, no, why not? This is real high-tech investigation stuff. What, do we know what the year difference is between the Warren Commission and this new commission? The Warren Commission was done for 10 months right after the assassination. So, so in the 60s. 63 to 65. Mm-hmm. The House Special Committee was in the 70s. 76 okay. to 79. So not that far off. Okay. Yeah, it was like 10, 10 15 years, something like that. And they found after looking at his call records that Ruby had made 52 calls to mafia leadership, various mafia figures in the month prior to the assassination. Wow. So if the Warren commission would have just done that, or if they maybe had direction not to do Mm, that, yeah, um, they would have seen that as well. It's pretty clear based on that evidence that Jack Ruby did not act as a grieving U S citizen. It is believed that he has either ordered, he was either ordered by the mob to kill Oswald or he was involved all along and somehow Oswald had information to blow the whistle on him so he must be removed from the equation. Right. Either way, he was involved, however you want to look at it. Right. So that's the Jack Ruby angle that has that fits into this. The mafia, like I mentioned before, had plenty of motivation to kill JFK. Loss of millions of dollars in Cuban businesses was enough by itself. Yeah. But there were other more personal reasons as well. One was Robert Kennedy's aggressive desire to eliminate and shut down organized crime, which had been completely denied and ignored, like I mentioned, prior to his tenure. The mob felt that it had been betrayed by the U.S. government. And we'll get into why that is in just a second here. In the spring and summer of 1963, according to credible federal witnesses, three major mafia figures were allegedly heard discussing methods and means to kill JFK and Robert together. Oh. Not at the same time, but they had these different plots okay. and were setting up contracts to make this happen. You think you just do it together, get it over with, in one fell swoop. Yeah, well, if, I don't know how often they were together. I mean... Yeah. So this mafia hatred went all the way back uh, to the 20s, when JFK's father, Joe, ran a bootlegging business during Prohibition. This obviously intersected with mafia business because they were involved in that as well. Yeah. Joe was seen as a very affluent, powerful, and controversial business figure, and mafia leaders took out contracts to eliminate Joe. As a favor to Joe, one of the mafia leaders named Sam Giancano (laughs) was instrumental in removing the contracts to kill him, so he shut those down because Joe made a promise, the promise of the White House. He told Sam... If you elect my son, the White House is yours. Oh, So, I mean, dear. even nowadays, the unions have a lot of power. The unions are thought to be controlled by the mafia, probably going back to the Jimmy Hoffa days. He gets a mention in this as well in a second. So I think that's where that kind of came from, is that whole thing of, if you elect my son, you'll have friends in the White House. That's what the mafia believed. But they were ultimately betrayed by that when Robert started trying to shut them down. Okay, are you following me? There's I'm lots of different following. parts There's in this There's so one. many angles. And when Kennedy was elected, Illinois was the state that flipped, and specifically Chicago, which gave the mafia the false idea that they actually were responsible for his, for his election, just like oh. Joe had promised them. Okay. So they really felt like, hey, the White House is ours. We got this. We got a friend in the highest place. Uh, but as soon as Robbie, Robert, Bobby Kennedy was appointed to, a- to the AG, 
they felt betrayed by his aggressive actions, and that's when things really started to go sour for the family. That information alone tells me this was 100% them. Right. I mean, it sounds like it. So I said Jimmy Hoffa gets a mention. He was also connected to the dislike of the Kennedy family and was very connected with the mafia. John F. Kennedy had publicly criticized Hoffa and inferred that he was a communist. Hoffa never forget, forgot this and held a grudge. And like I said, he has friends in high places in the mafia. Other mafia leaders around the country shared in their hatred of the Kennedys because of their crackdown on organized crime and other reasons. The leader responsible for Louisiana and pretty much all of the South was apprehended by Robert Kennedy and his team and was taken to South America where he was left to die. He eventually escaped, however, and started this whole thing. I'm going to get Bobby Kennedy. The mafia leader who lost millions due to his casinos being shut down after the Bay of Pigs fiasco confessed on tape in a later investigation that maybe we eliminated the wrong Kennedy. Maybe it should have been Robert. Mm -hmm. So this is where things get really interesting and this is where I'll kind of close and let you all think about this for a while. In recently released evidence, and like I mentioned what do you last mean recent, well, recent last episode, I think this documentary was made in 2008, I believe. Okay. I'd have to listen back and, and check that, but I'm pretty sure it was 2008. And so on that documentary, they said in recent release of evidence, retired CIA agents report that a plot to kill JFK was in fact being planned with their knowledge and that an abort team which Lee Harvey Oswald was undoubtedly a part of, was supposed to stop the killing and they failed. Oh, no. Yeah. I just want to leave it at that. Wait. That just kind of thickens the plot quite a bit. So I wanted to present tonight all of this evidence of mafia involvement. We all know what went down based on last episode. And if anyone studied this or, or seen the footage, a shot clearly comes from the front. At least one. Well, yeah. Blows the back your, of his head out. brain matter doesn't splatter forward. Right. So. The exit wound's not a gaping hole in the back of your... I'm sorry. The entrance wound is not going to be a gaping hole in the back of your head. That's an exit wound from a shot in the front. For sure. Yeah. The Warren Commission says fake news. The shot came from the back. Went through a whole bunch of people and missed all the bone and hit all the people with one bullet. Right. A magic bullet. The single shot theory. But all this connection to the mafia, all this evidence, the House Select Committee report, and everything I've presented here, I encourage all of you to watch the documentary because there is all kinds of commentary from FBI and CIA agents that were there. And they're coming out now and saying, I know the truth. I was part of this. I don't know how 57 years later, we still don't know. The truth. And like I said last episode, everything was marked top secret, never to be opened. I don't know that we'll ever know the truth of this thing. I know. Well, the people are going to start dying. Right. And this is going to be <laughs> one of the biggest be cover ups. Nobody of all time. alive. So, yeah, that's what I got for you the wow. saga of JFK. That's crazy. Like I said, I am, I am a firm believer now after doing this. Absolutely a conspiracy involving the mafia and higher levels of government, the FBI, CIA. They were trying to preserve that relationship they had made with organized crime. I don't know if they're getting kickbacks or what the case is, but they clearly were trying to preserve that. They did not like what the Kennedys were doing in office, and they said, we're going to get rid of all of you. And Interesting. I, I still think all of the deaths that have happened 
are related to this. That's my conspiracy theory for everyone to chew on. I love it. Didn't one of them die recently from a drug overdose in uh, right here on Cape Cod? I think so. Yeah, but it was like a it's like a granddaughter or, or something. A, yeah, yeah. I don't something know. I just like that. after reading all this, I refuse to. I don't believe in curses, and something has gone awry with almost every Kennedy family member since insane. this. I know it's so, insane. I, you heard it here first, or maybe you didn't. I'm saying it's all mafia, CIA related. They are trying to eliminate the Kennedy name. I like it. All right, that's my story. Interesting. Right, that was good. Scary. I was hoping bit. you had more, but that's like, all there I like is. It all. I mean, yeah, I like it all. Yeah, that's absolutely scary. It is. Let's not piss off the CIA, please. No, or the mafia. Or the mafia. No. Or anybody, really, for that matter. I think the key is don't make friends with the mafia. Then you don't have to worry about pissing them off. Like, they don't know us because we haven't done anything good or not bad Not yet. For <laughs> <laughs> they might now. <laughs> okay, well, to see pictures and more information on these cases, be sure to follow us on social media. And how did we miss that? And a big thank you for our theme composition goes to Audio Anywhere Productions. You can find them at audioanywhereproductions.com. See you next week. Until then, keep your head up and look out for each other. Bye.